Hello and welcome to another edition and episode of the Driving You Crazy podcast. Welcome to all the new listeners out there. And thank you to all the listeners who have been with us for a while. I am the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. I'm the pedestrian advocate, Joseph Peters. All you new listeners, don't forget to drop us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. We're on iTunes. We're on Podbean. We're on Stitcher. What else are we on, Jason? Um, everything. There you we're go. We're just on the web. You could do a Google search for Driving You Crazy Podcast. Boom, and there it is. And you're listening to it. If you're watching us on YouTube, just hit the thumbs up button. Don't even think about it, right? Exactly. We are on the YouTube. Uh, We just rate, review, and repeat. That's what we need you to do. Rate, review, and repeat. Uh, We have another big show today, Joseph. Later, we're going to talk to Riley Griffin. She's a reporter with Bloomberg to talk about I-95 and how it's finally being completed 60 years or so after it was started. I had no idea that I-95 wasn't finished until I read her story. Um, anything worth doing is worth doing 60 years, right? <laughs> Marriage, perfect example. There you go. Why not? If it's worth doing, you do it for a long time. Uh, this week, I also heard from one member of our news staff who uh, listened to the podcast from last week and took umbrage with my unliking of the movie uh, Waterworld. Look, I, I, you know, I like Kevin Cosner movies for the most part. I just didn't like that one. Isn't Waterworld is bad like a universal opinion? I don't know anybody yes. who disagrees with that. Like Kazam. Kazam isn't bad. Yes, it is. How about Ash? Is it Ashtar? Ishtar? Isn't oh, that one bad? I don't know anything about Ishtar. I have. Do not know, keep Kazam's name out of your mouth. Um. Yeah. Welcome. Look, we welcome all kinds of feedback, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Remember to rinse, repeat, and reuse. No, that's not right. Uh, rate, review, and repeat. Something like Anyway. Uh, in sailing news, in follow-up sailing news, no less. Yes. Here on the Driving You Crazy podcast, last time we talked about the woman who fell off the cruise boat. I guess it's a cruise ship. Uh, did I tell you that story about the captain on the cruise ship one time who told me? So he, so sometimes they have these gatherings with the captain before the cruise, and, and uh, he'll, he'll talk to all the passengers, and he says, uh, by the way, this is a cruise ship, not a cruise boat. Oh. A, a sheep carries boats. We carry boats. We're a sheep. I think it was from Norway or somewhere, okay. and I, I didn't do that accent very well. But anyway, so it, let's go back to the woman who fell off the cruise ship and not the cruise boat. Are you sure you want to do that and not go back to the accent? Because I, <laughs> I really don't know what country that was supposed to be. I don't either. Anyway, she was rescued after spending 10 hours in the ocean. Now there is more to the story. As the ex-wife of the man, reportedly seen arguing with his partner before she went overboard, said that if she was on the ship with him, she would have jumped off. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Nobody likes this guy, apparently. She, too, added that if I was on the ship with him, I would get off any way I could. Another passenger on board claims to have seen that couple argue several times the evening of the overboarding. Is that a word? Yes, definitely. Uh, I don't think that really is a word, but I'm just going to, it fits with this context, so we're going to stick with it. Uh, Apparently, that guy is not the greatest man in the world. I mean, he's really torqued off two women so badly that they want to jump off a cruise ship. That's pretty bad. That's not good. Not a guy you want to hang out with, I guess. I, maybe he just has bad taste in women. I don't think I've ever driven anybody that mad. Um, or that crazy to want to jump off a ship. Yeah, well. Or a boat or a kayak or a dinghy. I'll tell you this much. I definitely have. Oh, really? I you want to elaborate? I definitely have. I don't know that I need to elaborate. 
You don't? No. Okay. <laughs> Ever had anybody want to jump off a paddleboard? Things. Kayak or something? Things. Okay. Well, we've all heard the saying, what goes up must come down. Have you heard that saying? I have. It's especially the case with arrows. When you shoot them up, they usually come down. Uh, usually somewhere you don't know where it's going to fall because you're just shooting it randomly in the air. Well, in Stockton, California, someone shot an arrow in the air, and it came down into the hood of a car waiting at a stoplight. Uh. The driver heard something hit her car and suspected uh, it was like a dozen different things she thought it could be. All kinds of different things. She never thought that it was an arrow that was sticking out of the hood of her car. And, of course, the California Highway Patrol being the killjoys that they are, uh, warned locals that it should go without saying how unsafe it is to discharge weapons into the air. Discharge, well. That is cop speak, isn't it? Do you have to be more broad about it? Can't you just be like, look, don't do this. <laughs> yeah. Why are you doing this? That, that is what we need. Spokespeople from especially official police agencies to say, why are you doing this? Don't do this. Please stop. It could be it, that could be for gang shootings. It, it could it could be right. for shooting arrows in the air. It could be for driving in the left lane. It could be for a lot of things. Just we need more realistic, less cop speak uh, police spokespeople. Don't you think? One hundred percent agree. Yeah, I don't think they're looking too hard for the culprit. <laughs> Apparently, there's uh, something irresistible about wet concrete. It has some kind of a magical pull that makes people drawn to it and into it and driving into it. It's just there, there's something ma- people want to put their hands on it, right in it, all that kind of stuff. I don't know that people want to drive into it. Well, maybe not, but that's what one person in Michigan did. Oh. A motorcyclist, he drove <laughs> into the work zone on I-69 and into the freshly poured wet concrete. Doesn't that make it a lot worse that it was a motorcycle? Uh-huh, because you should see the pictures of it. It, the bike was towed to the impound lot with concrete still all over the tires, all over spread on the front of the bike, through the side, right there on the outside of the engine. And the Michigan DOT, get this, they said in their Facebook page that the rider could pick up the bike at the impound lot where the police will be waiting for you. I'm sure that gave the concrete plenty of time to cure and harden right there on the motorcycle, probably making it undrivable. I mean, I feel like that's an understatement, right? Yeah. The thing with wet concrete is people want to write in it, but you don't realize how long that stuff is actually going to stay there. There's an expletive written in the concrete by the King Supers that I go to. King Supers is a grocery store for all you non-Coloradans. An expletive in the concrete that has been there since I moved here four years ago. It is not going anywhere. How large is this expletive? Uh, big enough that I notice it every time I walk by it. Um, is it a word that starts with an S or an F? Uh I guess I shouldn't say it's an expletive. It's just something that I don't feel comfortable saying on here because we we'll get oh. the explicit rating. It starts with a T. All right. I, I have no idea. We can talk about that off air. Okay, perfect. Uh, we so many times hear about how low-income people have no good options to transportation except for public transit. We hear that a lot, especially from the streets blog people and other people that are always pushing public transit and always pushing uh, the bike share, the ride, all that stuff, right? Well, a new study of ride-hailing services in Los Angeles suggests that apps like Uber and Lyft may be dramatically increasing transportation access for minority groups and lower-income neighborhoods. I thought this was very interesting. The impact of this is huge because those populations have been so poorly served by traditional taxis 
Uh, these people are less likely to own private vehicles, and the ride-hailing services then may be dramatically increasing their overall mobility, which is good for them because then they can go out maybe to different and farther places to go get better and maybe better-paying jobs. Right. The new research conducted by UCLA used data from Lyft to find that the company's drivers served 99.8% of Los Angeles and that users living in low-income areas made more trips per capita than those in middle- and high-income areas. And that study also found that lower car ownership, which is correlated with lower income and minority status, also correlated to increased Lyft use. So the study then suggests what is a situational convenience for some high-income riders, let's say just going out to the bars and drinking and and needing a ride home, that sort of thing, something that's occasionally used for special events or special situations, is instead a lifeline for those people who can't afford cars. While ride-hailing services are generally more expensive for riders than public transportation, they're more convenient and reliable than most bus services, something we've talked about here that you always know that you're going to get the ride share when you need it and where you need it, and you'll be able to uh, go and 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 get to your destination whenever you want. No last mile, no first mile problem. It's exactly. boom, one stop to the next. Right. It's widely uh, been known that uh, in the pre-Uber era in major cities, when trying to hail a taxi on the street, conventional taxis are less likely, likely to stop for black passengers than white passengers. We've heard anecdotal stories about that for years and years and years. It has also been shown that taxis have long uh, been avoiding lower and more what they say is crime-infested neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Um, It's harder to get into those neighborhoods populated by typically poorer residents, but that's not the case with these rideshare places. The study showed taxi discrimination against black riders, who in this study waited as much as 15 minutes longer than white riders for a cab, But when it came to Uber and Lyft, the wait time for black passengers was no more than two minutes. So that's dramatically better. Well, that's no different from anybody else, right? Right. It's Exactly. It's no preferential treatment. It's just you you get it no matter who you are, which is the way it should be. The team found no substantial difference in wait times between white, Asian, and Hispanic riders all using the ride-hailing apps. So these companies are actually helping these lower-income folks rather than hurting them, as we've heard for so many uh, years with, with these uh, with, with some studies that have come out. Uh, by the way, when I was a kid, I was told to never talk to strangers and never ride in a car to, with strangers, right? Right. But there's Uber. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm getting into a car with a stranger. That is very true. A stranger that's been vetted. Like, let's be real here. Well, let's hope. <laughs> we hope he or she has been vetted. But you never know. Well, I'm a big fan of the interstate highway system. Uh, I don't, I don't sit around like all day thinking about it or anything like like I love it. But I, I do really like the interstate highway system. And one of the goals of having the interstate highways was really to to move troops and uh, to be able to move um, personnel from one part of the country to the other. Now it's really all about moving commerce across the country. Well, I guess until the hyperloop is finished. Uh, One of the major interstates is I-95. It connects Maine to Florida, goes all the way along the East Coast, or so we thought. There is one very small section of I-95 that was never completed, but that is coming to an end. And I learned all about this by reading an interesting article by Bloomberg reporter Riley Griffin. And it's titled, After 60 Years, I-95 is Complete. Meanwhile, the rest of America's roadways, rails, and bridges 
are disintegrating. Here to talk more about her story is Bloomberg reporter Riley Griffin. Hi, Riley. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. And I, I like to, to think that I know a lot about the interstate highway system, but I didn't realize that I-95 wasn't totally complete. Did, did it surprise you when you first started digging into the story? Yes, absolutely. I actually hadn't realized either. And what you're pointing to is this is an incredibly historic moment. Um, I-95 will actually be the last infrastructure project financed by President Dwight Eisenhower's 1956 National Interstate and Defense Highways Act, which authorized $25 billion, which today would be around $230 billion, for the construction of 40,000 miles of the interstate highway system. Um, at the time, this was actually the largest public works project in American history. And so this is an incredibly historic moment that I-95 is going to be completed and create that seamless highway from north to south on the East Coast. Yeah, seamless, right. It's, <laughs> I guess if we have enough gas or enough charge in our electric car to get from one place to the next. How, exactly. how, did, how did we get to this point where this little section of I-95 was, was never completed until now? Well, it's a complicated story, but like many things, it has to do with landowners, um, rich landowners who did not want their area to be disrupted by construction. And so back in the 1980s, there was local opposition in Mercer County, which um, is near Philadelphia. It's near Princeton, um, right on that Pennsylvania-New Jersey border. Um, there was local opposition in this county to I-95 being built through the region and disrupting what people called the rural landscape. But the larger point to be made here is that ultimately it's a state decision to advance an interstate project. The Federal Highway Administration doesn't actually have, a, have control over a project like this. And a lot of the experts I spoke with said there's a natural disincentive for local government to be a leader in long-distance infrastructure, making a project like this hard to complete even after 60, 60 years. So, I mean, walk me through what it was like to get off at this nine-mile stretch in Pennsylvania, get, getting off the interstate for eight miles and then getting back on. How did that affect traffic through these rural communities? Throughout time or today? Uh, throughout time. Well, it's a bit complicated. So when Mercer County essentially pushed away this I-95 project, what had to happen was in 1982, Congress mandated the completion of the interstate using existing state turnpikes. Um, but in, from 1980 through now, how people have essentially gotten from I-95 moving south to north is they've taken the road and ultimately been detoured to 295. This gets a little complicated, but there's a, a big arc that people are making. And unless you're a really savvy driver... Um, you can get lost on these smaller roads and highways um, in an effort to get back onto 95 later. So the infrastructure today, um, you know, in short, it's going to include the creation of flyover ramps, toll plaza facilities, environmental mitigation sites to protect nearby turtles, intersections, uh, six overhead bridges, widened highways, but the most important part is that there are going to be new connections to the New Jersey and Pennsylvania Turnpike, which will essentially make 95 seamless from north to south. Is this going to be a similar situation? I don't know if you saw the movie Cars, 
But Radiator Springs, when Route 66 went uh, the way of the uh, Route 66 and they built the interstate highway in that movie, it just cut off that little community of Radiator Springs when everybody was sticking to the interstate. So is there a little community right there where people might have gotten off of I-95 and get back on and not taken that loop around? Is there a little community that's going to shrivel up and die now because that interstate is going to cut right through? No, not not necessarily, just given that they're using the, the old infrastructure and rebuilding the old infrastructure. Um, so essentially a part of the Pennsylvania Turnpike will now be redesignated as I-95, and a part of the New Jersey Turnpike will be redesignated as I-95. So there's not, in a large way, a community that's being cut off, and that was part of why it's taken so long to fill this missing link or fill the gap is because there were a number of commission studies on environmental impact and community impact in order to, to proceed with the construction that was mandated in 1982. Well, and you talked about how this is the last piece of legislation that Eisenhower signed into law in the 50s. Um, and it just goes to show how long some of these projects take to complete. Mm-hmm what lessons can be learned and like how can we expect to accomplish similar projects going forward or is that even something that can be done with the amount of red tape that needs to be crossed now? The sense I'm getting from speaking with experts is that we're really entering a, a new phase of infrastructure building. This is the last leg of 95 that's being completed and, and in a large-scale way, the question doesn't concern new roads. It concerns widening roads, improving roads, um, refurbishing this kind of infrastructure to make it so that a lot of the commuters, particularly in New Jersey and New York, are able to um, get around on the day-to-day to work or travel on I-95 from south to north um, is seamless in that sense. But we're entering a new stage of infrastructure development, and these questions are really at the forefront, particularly when autonomous vehicles and, uh, are, are entering the debate. We're speaking to Riley Griffin, reporter with Bloomberg in New York, to talk about her story titled, After 60 Years, I-95 is Complete. Meanwhile, the rest of America's roadways, rails, and bridges are disintegrating. Now, Riley, since the genesis of this podcast... We have talked about infrastructure improvements. We've talked a lot about how there are cities and states and and the federal government looking for ways to make infrastructure improvements without just taxing the bejesus out of of people. Now, finishing I-95 seems like a little victory, but there is still a huge backlog of needs when it comes to other highways and bridges and public roadways. Colorado is a perfect example of that. Yeah, there is a huge need, particularly in terms of funding. Um, It's estimated that spending on infrastructure from 2016 through 2025 is $2 trillion, $2 trillion short of what's needed, um, says the American Society of Civil Engineers. So we're a long way away from having the ideal funding for American infrastructure. And things aren't getting better on I-95. The I-95 corridor coalition estimates that the number of vehicles on the highway will increase by 85% by 2035. Hmm. And transportation officials really don't have a solution for this yet. 
Um, I mean, so are we looking at a possible situation where we have states that are haves and states that are have-nots? When I was growing up along the Vermont-New Hampshire border, it was a running joke that as soon as you cross the interstate from New Hampshire into Vermont, the roads got substantially worse. And part of that is because of the way those states fund transportation differently. Are we going to be seeing a patchwork of states with well-funded roads and states with poorly funded roads? You know, I think the research points to that, absolutely. Um, I-95 is is an interesting one because it's host to more than a fifth of the nation's roads and miles, and and in serving 110 million people, it's reaching the most densely populated region in the country. So this particular road faces a, a lot of challenges. You mentioned funding. And here in Colorado, we, we haven't raised our gas tax since 1993. Funding for our infrastructure here hasn't really kept up. But in your story, you mentioned New Jersey specifically and the money issues that they've had with even funding any of their roads. Even though they've increased their gas tax even a couple of years ago, there's mm-hmm. been some, I guess, borrowing, if you want to call it that, from the road uh, uh, monies into other areas of the New Jersey government. So. Uh, it doesn't seem like the roads are ever going to win if you're putting money into the roads and they take it right away and put them into something else. Yeah, that year you're talking about is 2016, when New Jersey raised the gas tax for the first time in 30 years, about 30 years. Um, At that point, Governor Chris Christie had been opposed to raising the gas tax, but the Transportation Trust Fund, which ultimately is what is used to fund improvements to roads, bridges, rail systems, was practically depleted. And so the second lowest gas tax in the country, it still had some of the most pressing infrastructure problems, these local roads, tunnels, and as it's been uh, much in the media's public eye, um, bridges like the Lincoln Tunnel. Yeah, because you live in New York and you've seen your fair share of uh, infrastructure problems with all the rail work that's been going on the last summer and... uh... And obviously the bridges and tunnels and some of them have been improved. Um, It it also seems that the Trump administration is coming at least closer and closer to coming up to their final proposal to drop, what, about a trillion dollars for infrastructure, but maybe make that like we've seen a lot here in Colorado is do the public-private partnership deal. Have you seen a lot of that out there to the East Coast? Um, No, just what you're reporting. The White House has proposed for fiscal year 2018, calling for a trillion in investment over the next de- decade and really asking for support from the private sector. Um, but President Trump has yet to outline details for that plan, and the administration has said that action on a, a bill that would specify those details isn't likely this year, um, particularly until after the midterm election. Riley, thanks a lot for joining us here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. That was Riley Griffin, reporter with Bloomberg, talking about her story titled After 60 Years, I-95 is Complete. Meanwhile, the rest of America's roadways, rails, and bridges are disintegrating. Well worth the read, I think. Did you realize that about a quarter of all the vehicles, all the miles traveled in the country is on the interstate highway system? It's not surprising, especially 95, where you figure you're talking about the three 
biggest metroplexes in the country are all yeah. concentrated in that area. Of course, there's going to be a lot of drivers Yeah, she there. was saying, what, a third of the country's population mm-hmm. is really up along the I-95 corridor. Mm-hmm. And um, they not only move a lot of people in commerce, they move a lot of drugs up along the I-95 corridor as well. I mean, we didn't get into that in that conversation. No. I mean, the I-95 was always something that we tried to avoid as a family because it gets so congested in D.C. and in New York City. My dad would always try to find workarounds and alternate highways, so we'd wind up in the great old backwoods of upstate New York and western Virginia. And and I was thinking about the highway system, and, and you know, the highest in elevation of the interstate highway system is right here at the Eisenhower Tunnel at right. 11,158 feet. Um, the longest uh, one is I-90. That is the longest interstate highway, and it goes between Boston and Seattle. Even longer than I-95. But maybe now that it's complete, maybe it'll be the longest highway. Jason with the facts, man. Gotta love that. Coming up, isn't it everyone's dream to always fly in a private jet? It is mine. I'd much rather do that than go to the big airports with the big airplanes and fly in coach. Well, there is a new service that you can subscribe to that will allow you to do just that. And it doesn't cost as much as you might think. That and so much more as the Driving You Crazy podcast continues. It's the Driving You Crazy podcast with your host, Jason Luber. My favorite part is watching the interaction between everyone because I think you guys have a fantastic sense of humor and I think you just jive really well because if you're sitting at home, I'm in my PJs and in my coffee and I want to look up and I want to see these people who I feel like I know on the morning show and they're just talking to me and they're having a great time and they're also telling me what I need to know to be prepared for my day and what I need to know in my community. Connor Wist, only on Denver 7. Denver 7 on the weekend is a great way to start your day. You get all of the news, the weather. We talk about what the weather's going to be like heading into your weekend plans, if it's going to affect it, if you want to head to the mountains. We have a good time, and we'd love for you to join us. Katie LaSalle, only on Denver 7. Welcome back to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast, uh, where we talk about everything and anything that gets you from here over to there, on the land, on the sea, or in the air. Are there other ways to get from here to there? Are you trying to write a poem to bring us into this broadcast? No, I'm not, and I'm not a poet. I know that for sure. I am not a good poet. I don't like poetry for the most part. I do like limericks. (laughs) We won't go into any here. Good. That's that's probably a good choice. Uh, Okay. There was a time right after the new year, several years ago, though, that a group of us on the morning show, we wanted to get in better shape. Were you here at that time? We were doing push-ups in the morning show? No. Because we're all pretty round, and we wanted to get in a better, a different shape than round? Mostly Mitch. Mostly Mitch is round? Yeah. He's more of a Mm, mm pear-shaped. But we we thought we could build up to 100 push-ups by opening day for the Rockies. Okay. Um, And that, that was pretty tough. But we did it. We did. We started with like five one day, and then then ten, and then we were just working our way all the way up there. See, that, that's a good. I, I say all this because that's a good productive use of your time for push-ups, right? You're doing them in a in a nice place. You're doing them for a good reason. Well, a bad place to do push-ups is the Los Angeles International Airport. 
No, it's not. Well, it is if you do it on the runway. A man jumped the fence, ran onto the runway, and started doing push-ups on the runway. That is a bad place to do push-ups. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. I, like, begrudgingly, yes. I don't <laughs> want to admit that. Because, you know, it's just a dude, and it was some of his boys, and he's like, yo, man, go run out there and do some push-ups. And he was like, all right, I'll do it. And he just <laughs> did it. He did. It took a couple of minutes before airport security um, caught up with the man and stopped him from doing the push-ups and put him in the back of the squad car. Uh, but they didn't have to close that area of the airport for 20 minutes to do a security sweep. There wasn't any information about how good those push-ups were, because that's really what I wanted to know. Were they the good military-style push-ups? You know, where he's going all the way down to his chest? Were they really fast, really slow? Or was he doing them where, you know, you're doing them kind of half-assed on your knees? I don't think you run onto the runway at LAX and you do half-ass push-ups, man. I think he might have been doing the claps in the middle. You think so? Down and up and clapping, down and up, and you know what I'm talking about. He was doing the rocky one-armed yep, absolutely. push-ups, that sort of thing. Electric uh, and electronic billboards were once a rare sight along the highways, but that is changing quickly. Electronic billboards, they're able to flash new ads about every few seconds, and they've sprouted up by the hundreds, especially in California, and California environmentalists and safety traffic experts are, well, not happy about it. Imagine that. In the nearly eight years since Jerry Brown was elected governor, his administration has nearly tripled the number of digital signs permitted along their highways in California to 366. And now the Brown administration thinks California can make a profit, saying it isn't a bad idea to allow commercial ads on the state-operated over-the-highway electric message boards. Those are the ones that usually you see for an Amber Alert or, hey, there's a traffic uh, crash uh, just up the head or, hey, hazardous conditions or whatever the case may the be. The ones that only show, like, 40 characters? Yes. Yeah, but what they are we can, But they can flash on one side and then another one, right? They can do a couple of different messages. I, I know at least ours here in Colorado, they do two different signs so they have like one message followed by another message and it's i'm just picturing like it saying pepsi 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 you know what i mean right like, over and over again like it just says pepsi on the bill that's what they want that's exactly what they want and governor brown wants the state legislature to approve a five-year pilot program that would put ads for just about any commercial product on many of the 904 state operated highway message signs that are currently just limited to flashing traffic information and this test program, they say, would generate maybe $10 million in revenue for the state of California over the first just four years. That is a lot of bread. Is that really that much money, though? That's... Well, maybe not for a state in California size. I was going to say it's for you and me, it's million a lot. A year, yeah. But hey, that, let's say you poured that money into new signs, new cameras, new something else that goes to the roads. Why not? Sure. You can pay for one quarter mile of highway. <laughs> Now, on the other side, there are many cities and counties that want to kill that measure, fearing it's going to take away their power to control the signage. Patrick Frank, he's a Los Angeles resident who's also president of the Coalition to Ban Billboard Blight. He... <laughs> what? Ban Billboard Blight. The triple B. He says the new digital billboards would be an eyesore, quote, it's the world's worst idea. It's crazy. It's out of control. It's not financially necessary. We don't need advertising on our freeways. We're completely against it for aesthetic reasons, among others, unquote. This is not a man you want to get a beer with. No. Fr yeah, yeah, no. I don't think so. Do, is he the founder of... 
band billboard blight? I, I wouldn't doubt it. I would not doubt it. Maybe we should look him up. Don't you love neighborhood groups where it's just like one guy gets really mad about something, he finds three other guys who are just as mad, and all of a sudden <laughs> they got a name and a logo and a website and a Facebook page? Sounds a lot like uh, Hank Hill. Yes. Just sitting around with his buddies, drinking a beer. Hank Hill does not get mad at billboards, though. Damn it, Bobby, wouldn't this be a good idea to get rid of those billboards? We should do the whole show like that. Uh, the proposal is <laughs> also opposed by Jerry Watchell. He's a traffic safety expert who has done research for the National Cooperative Highway Research Program. The names of these places. At least that sounds like a legitimate organization. Now, Jerry believes the digital signs would make California freeways more dangerous. Get this. He says, quote, there is no doubt that it would add to distracted driving. It takes the driver's eyes off the road, and depending upon how effective the beer ad is, it may take the driver's mind off the road as well. Unquote. Who said this was going to be a beer ad? Exactly. Just he does. making facts he, up over he here. He thinks that it's all going to be Coors Light and Heineken and whatever up there on the sign. Hey, if you're going to drink and drive, drink a Budweiser. You know, that's not going to happen. I think that one was rejected. Probably. <laughs> but people are going to be then just as distracted if they're reading a sign about, hey, it's a poor air alert day. Or, hey, there's a crash up ahead. You might want to get in the left lane. I mean, why are we, why are we chicken littling this? Like, there have been billboards for 40 years. No, not many people have gotten so distracted that it caused a crash. So why is this sudden billboard, this new billboard, going to cause more problems than the old one Because did? they don't want to see advertisements. They don't want to have any Tom, Dick, or Harry, or Harry and David, uh, have their ads up there on these billboards. That's exactly why. I say let Harry and David have all the ads on it, all the billboards they want. Get all the pears you can you can stand to eat. Maybe they can make five million a year off it instead of two point five. Exactly. You have to get the higher end uh, advertisers. Probably not Harry and David. Maybe I don't know. IBM. They it's, have some money. Google. You know who? It they would have be. some money. It's definitely just an accident attorney. Like definitely Frank oh, Azar. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Did you just get into a crash? Call me now. <laughs> right there. That's a perfect opportunity for all these ambulance chasers. To have their ads over the highway. Can you imagine? Cause a crash. I'll give you a $500 credit just for calling me. Are you injured? Come to Cedar sinai Hospital. Right? Isn't that the way it should go? We'll come to you. Oh, my goodness. Did you just get into a crash? Here's the phone number for the ambulance service that, you need to, that you're that you going to need to come and take you to the hospital. And Frank Azar is just waiting inside with his arms <laughs> folded like, how can we do business? Exactly. I think it's brilliant. Are you hungry? Exit here and, and eat at uh, Frank's Bait Shop. <laughs> what about that? Something like, no? Sure. You know, I mean, all that is available. Well, Caltrans spokesman Mark Dinger, he said traffic safety issues would be paramount for the agency if a test program is tried. Although the pilot would be inten intended to assess revenue-generating possibilities from the advertising, Caltrans's primary concern would be any potential for safety impact on the motoring public. Any such impact would cause the immediate and permanent discontinuation of the program. There's a lot of big words in that. That was a written statement, not something he said out loud, hence all the big words. <laughs> right. Nobody writes, or nobody actually talks like mm -hmm. that. Nobody. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm still, I guess, a bit mixed on it uh, overall, because on one hand, if the state can make some money, sure, go let them make, make some money and put it into some other transportation stuff. If, as long as it would stay with the roads and, and it would pay for, like I said, a, maybe another sign or a couple of cameras, it's obviously not going to 
pay for a lot because road construction is so expensive, but it could pay for a few things. Correct. It's pointless, but sure, make a few extra bucks. Why not? But as a driver, I'd also don't want to be driving on the interstate and see an ad for Coors or the Broncos or... What what the Patriots or whatever the case may be? I don't I don't really care. I don't I don't want to see that. I get over it first of all. <laughs> but like really, I mean the only the only way this poses a real problem is if all of a sudden we're not putting up Amber Alert information because of the ads, right? If it turns into a situation like you have here, where oh you can cut into certain programming, but if you want to cut into this program, don't do it. If, if we're talking about, oh, yeah, this advertisement is fine. Put up the silver alert information. That advertisement needs to go, though, so let's make sure we get Pepsi on there for five minutes. That's going to be a problem. But that's also a really common sense thing that I don't even think is going to pose, like, come up. If there's an Amber Alert, put the information out there if it's not. But how long do you leave the Amber Alert up? How long do you leave uh, a message that, hey, there's poor air quality and everybody's supposed to stay inside? How long do you say that the fire is closing down this one stretch of highway? Uh, so... Amber alert, leave it up in perpetuity. Uh, fire, same deal. Air quality alert, why? I, they what, do that here? I went outside, I they breathed. It, it wasn't easy. <laughs> Boom. I just gave myself an air quality alert. Yeah. No, I, I, look, I agree with some of that, but it's, it, it's a balancing act that those folks at the Department of Transportation in California would have to figure out. Are they going to leave it up there? The, the, are they going to have pressure from the advertisers? Do not block their ads, and if they do, for how long they block them, will they then get a credit, the advertiser get a credit for uh, not having to pay for the advertisement that day? Well, and you know this $2.5 million in revenue is just going to pay for people to manage the advertising program, so why are we even talking about it, right? <laughs> You're probably, like, all hey, that profit's going to get wiped right out. It's going to give somebody a job, though. There you go. Maybe me. Maybe I can be the person that will operate those things, and I will collect $2.5 million. How hard is it to sell that advertising? Hey, there are going to be a lot of people driving by this every day. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. That's a definite no-brainer. And, I, and it would be interesting to see if it's going to be just the big companies or they'll allow some of the smaller companies, uh, maybe a mom-and-pop shop like you know Frank's Bait Shop to, uh, to advertise. I on. love micro-advertising. Like, I, I, I very much want people to just buy like spots on our television station for one day just to advertise their lost dog. We had a man <laughs> call, and he was like, I'm prepared to offer you a very large amount of money to get the word out there about my lost dog. Really? And I transferred him. I was like, let me wash my hands of this. I don't need to hear that. Uh, but come on. Like, why not let, like, if James lost his dog and has 25 grand and wants to run commercials all day or sure. buy billboard space, let James do it. Sure. I'm all for it. I mean, I would think the advertising uh, department here on the fourth floor would take anybody's money. They don't care. It's money. Money is money, right, for them? Sort of. I mean, they, they won't, I don't think they'll do the pleasures dudes anymore. I think we wipe them off the air. They won't take their money. Um, that's a story for another podcast. <laughs> that's a different podcast, right? Anyway, flying commercially can sometimes be a real drag, right? Yep. Um, it isn't the dream of most people to fly on a on, on a you know regular commercial jet, but it is the dream of most people to fly on a private jet. I've been in private jets, but they've always been parked on the ground. And I've never really flown from one place to another in a private jet. I'm, I'm sure it would be really nice. Well, there is a uh, couple of companies that you've maybe NetJets is one of them. There's, I know there's some other ones uh, that actually fly private jets for hire. So if you're a big falutin celebrity of some sort and you have some cash, 
then uh, you can hire these companies to take you from place to place. And it, it costs you a little bit, obviously more than a regular uh, commercial flight, but you don't have to deal with the dregs of society. And I don't know why there's more people that are celebrities that, are, that don't do that and then they don't have the TMZ hanging out at the airport asking them all kinds of questions that they're trying to get into their car, right? Well, anyway, uh, there is now a new company called Aura, based out of Florida, that's going to operate as a semi-private boutique airline. They're going to offer flights priced at about business class rates on a limited number of set routes aboard aircraft that depart and arrive at private, small, general aviation airports, like the one we have here, Centennial Airport to the south of Metro Denver, and the one like Rocky Mountain Metro Airport just to the north up there in Broomfield. And, and being uh, in the helicopter as long as I have been, and flying out of Centennial and Rocky Mountain Metro, it is a dream. You just park, walk into the little uh, like TAC Air and, and Jet Center. They have these little terminals if you will but you really you walk into this lobby area go up to the counter hey i'm on that flight and you walk right onto the tarmac and into the plane and off you go honestly within about a half an hour you could park grab your stuff go in get onto the plane have it ready on the taxiway and off you go boom i'm in it is, ba- it is basically that easy. You, you, you can avoid all the uh, the checks and all that stuff and they, i don't know how they would do any kind of security if they would abandon that altogether. But I mean, who needs it? They don't do it right now because when I was flying the helicopter, you just you just walk right into the helicopter and off you go. I mean, we could be in the air, honestly. As soon as I arrive and I walk up there five minutes later, we're already in the air. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, um, so they're going to offer these, these flights on this uh, airline, but they have a membership element as part of this. A $250 monthly fee, it will lock in your fares at half of the price of what non-members will pay, and it's really an interesting idea so here you go one thing about now the one thing that's going to help aura is that they're acquiring this fleet of five to ten year old bombardier cr 700 aircraft they're they're about i don't know they're smaller than your typical big aircraft usually they're configured for about 75 people but they're going to scale that down with the way the seats, and, and they're going to have a passenger load of about 29 or 30. There's going to be two sections in the aircraft. They're going to have first and wave. Now, I don't know, understand why they named them that, and it's odd because they put the first um, section in the back oh, of the plane, okay. and wave, that section, is in the front of the plane. Now, in the first section, located in the back, they're going to have 21 seats. They say they're going to be wider and have more leg room than any other U.S. domestic airliner's first-class section. And the wave section in the front is going to have only eight seats, but they're going to be zero gravity seats, fully reclining in a space that resembles a business jet cabin, which I thought was pretty interesting. So it's almost going to be like your own private jet on a private jet in the front of the plane. Okay. Now, both sections of the cabin will be equipped with this display that's on the ceiling. It can be set to look like a starry night or the full sky or a sunset or whatever you wanted to set it set it as in the wave section which is in the front the technology would join uh, pairs of windows together to form a large virtual window which i think is kind of cool the augmented reality technology embedded in the windows of both cabins will enable a variety of information such as points of interest and time and distance to your destination to appear right there on the windows and on that uh, skyline 
That is cool. I'm in. So as you're flying, you flying over the Grand Canyon, it says you are flying over the Grand Canyon, and it points out the cool points of interest or the cities that you're flying over. Now, passengers will also be able to use virtual reality headsets to watch movies on what appears to be like a big IMAX screen, or they can view the high-definition video from the, the, the big tail-mounted 360-degree camera. Can I just, like, live on Aura? Isn't that cool? They say by watching that camera that's on the tail, that 360 camera that's on the tail of the aircraft while you're flying, you'll feel as though you're sitting on top of the aircraft without all the wind, presumably. I would hope so, yeah. It's not like the fully immersive experience. Just like um, what George Carlin used to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting on the airplane, I'm getting in the airplane. Correct. You can get on the airplane. <laughs> it's a lot less windier in the airplane. Now, right now, the plan is to launch Aura in 2019 with at least with at least four aircraft serving seven cities: Miami, Fort Lauderdale, New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and Denver. The aircraft will be operated by Presidential Aviation, and they want to add at least five more cities in 2020. And they're also expecting to do some regional flights to regional destinations like our mountains for skiers that want to go up there for skiing, or maybe cultural events like. What's that, Coachella, that sort of thing? Yep, yep. So here's part of the story that will make this interesting for more, most people. The one-way wave class fare, that's the first, that's like their first class, the one, the really expensive one. That's in the cool seats in the front of the plane. It's going to range from $600 for a Chicago to Atlanta flight, and that's just one way. So it's about 1200 bucks for a round-trip ticket. And here are some other prices. So, that, I mean, that's not too horribly unreasonable for a first-class person who wants to fly in a really cool airplane. Right. For the rest of us, it's way out of our price range. And you still have to pay that $250 monthly fee. Now, now I'll give you some of the first class. Well, I guess it's not first class. That first section seating, which is in the back of the plane, because these are the ones that are less expensive. So Chicago to New York, $330. Chicago to Atlanta, $280. Uh, how about Miami to New York City, $380. New York to Atlanta, three thirty, and L.A. to Denver, three hundred and thirty dollars. Now that is in line with some other business class fares that you're going to get from the regular airlines, but you're getting so much more service because you're flying out of these smaller airports, uh, cooler airplane, cooler technology, all that kind of things. Now all those are one-way fares, so they would double if you're doing a round trip. But who really wants to fly back to Chicago? I was going to say, what are you? What? what how popular is that Chicago <laughs> to Atlanta flight? A lot of people are doing business in Chicago, so uh, they the, those are also the fares for those key holder customers. And to join that, there's a one-time uh, initiation fee of seven hundred seven hundred dollars, and then there's a monthly fee of two hundred and fifty dollars. But then you get those fixed fares on all those routes, preferred seating. Uh, they call it flexible cancellation. And you can fly without being a key holder, but the seats cost double those fares. And I think it's a really interesting idea. I mean, I don't know. I don't fly enough to justify a $250 monthly fee. But the way to save money, really, to fly, if you fly a lot, is to pay that fee and then go on this airplane because you're going to be saving time from having to drive out to the airport and that whole rigmarole. And, and because really for the big executives... And why they can say they justify even their private jets is because time is money for those people. Right, 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 right. Uh, by the way, the travel blog One Mile at a Time describes Aura as a great idea that has no chance in hell of ever getting off the ground. <laughs>
So we'll we'll be following that story through 2019 to let you know when that Denver to LA flight finally launches. I'm going to put that on your credit card, okay. actually, and we'll test it out. Oh, here's my company credit card. Boom. Um, Thanks, Uncle Scripps. I, <laughs> I already have to uh, – I was just charged again for the uh, second year of hosting on Podbean for the podcast, and so I just got the notice from – Papa Scripps, that uh, I need to uh, fill out some paperwork so they can send off the correct payment to Podbean, and we can keep uh, hosting this podcast here on the old internets. I'll tell you what, I will take Frontier to Los Angeles, and then I'll take Aura back, and I'll let you know which one I liked better. (laughs) No, try Spirit. That's fine. I think you should try Spirit first, and then compare it with Aura, and see how that works out. But, hey, if I had the money, and I was maybe a smaller company that couldn't afford a private jet... And I, I could afford, you know, $3,000 a year for the uh, subscription fee, if you will, for the membership fee, and then pay those those fares. I, I would do it, especially if I was a highfalutin guy that, that needed to give me. Because if you can fly in half of the time, only spend half of the day traveling instead of the full day, you're doing business the other half of the day, and you're making money. There you go. I mean, I don't know what it's like to be a big shot executive. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, right. Look look at our podcast studio. Oh, exactly. I'm looking at it now. I can actually reach out. Can I do this? Yep. I can touch both walls with uh, each hand. Now, I can't do that that way. Almost. Let's see. Almost. Yeah, you got pretty close. Pretty close. That's how big the studio is, folks. And I'm 6'2", and I can almost touch all the walls at the same time. That is small. Not as small as the Aura aircraft. (laughs) Anyway, that's about it for this uh, lovely edition of the podcast. Uh, Thanks again to Riley Griffin for joining us on the show here uh, uh, today. Uh, That was great. I hope to have another interview uh, next next week. Uh, I'm efforting that as we speak. Uh, Until next time, thanks again for listening. And I'm Jason Lube, the traffic guy. I'm interstate avoider, Joseph Peters. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.